The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Well, good evening, everybody. How are we doing? You feeling good? All right, amen. By a show of hands, how many of you are thankful and glad to be here on a Wednesday night? We're about to take in the Word of God. How many of you are expecting and needing to hear from the Lord tonight? Let me hear you. All right. I know I need a word from the Lord, and I believe He's given me one for all of us. So let's go ahead and open our Bibles. We're continuing our series called Heart Cries, and tonight we're going to be in Psalm 139. Psalm 139. And those of you who are familiar with the Psalms know that this is this is this is going to be a feast tonight. This is some good stuff that we're about to sink our teeth in, and I just need you to whatever your level of expectation is coming into tonight for hearing the word of the Lord, I need you to raise the level of expectation because God is a God who loves to go exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond all that we could ask, think, or imagine. And so God's going to show up. He's going to speak tonight. And uh, the title of this message is Fully Known and Fully Loved. So Maybe you can help me just drive this, this theme home tonight by just looking at the person to your right or to your left and just telling them, God knows everything about you. Go ahead, say that. And he still loves you. All right, there's one more sentence. Tell them you are fully known and you are fully loved. That is good news, amen? Amen. So... I'll start with a poem. I've always loved uh, Dr. Seuss, actually a San Diego local, isn't he? Lived down in La Jolla for many years, and he just had a, a really fun and unique way of looking at life and this lens through which he looked at the world. And so he wrote this poem. It's called The Happy Birthday Poem, and it sets the tone for what I want to talk to you guys about this evening. And, and so here's how the poem goes. It says, if we didn't have birthdays, you wouldn't be you. If you'd never been born, well, then what would you do? If you'd never been born, then what would you be? You might be a fish or a toad or a tree. You might be a doorknob or three baked potatoes. You might be a bag full of hard green tomatoes. Or worse than all that, why, you might be a wasn't. A wasn't has no fun at all. No, he doesn't. A wasn't just isn't. He just isn't present, but you... You are you, and now isn't that pleasant? Today, you are you. That is truer than true. There's no one alive who is youer than you. Shout loud, I'm lucky to be what I am. Thank goodness I'm not just a clam or a ham or a dusty old jar of sour gooseberry jam. I am what I am. That's a great thing to be. If I say so myself, happy birthday to me. I love that moment. I love that sentence right there in the middle. Today you are you. That is truer than true. There's no one alive who is youer than you. Now that's great poetry, but as it turns out, it's also wonderful theology as we're about to see as we dive into Psalm 139. You see, when God made you, he quite literally broke the mold. There was no one on this planet 
that is just like you. You have a unique fingerprint. Your eyes are unique. Everything about you is stamped with uniqueness. And that's significant. You're one of a kind. Not just one in a million, but one in a kind. One of a kind. And that's unique because in this world, we're surrounded by things that are mass-produced, right? Walk into any store, whether it's a food store or a clothing store or whatever, and you're going to see row after row or shelf after shelf of things that are stockpiled and stacked, rows upon rows of goods that have been mass-produced, probably in some factory far away and then shipped to whatever store they ended up in, and that's what it is, mass-produced goods. But God doesn't work like that. God only makes one-of-a-kind masterpieces. He, with his sovereign hand, lovingly designs us from our lips to our hips to our fingertips. We are lovingly designed by an awesome creator. And that truth has implications for our lives. And here's what it means. It means that we are invaluable and irreplaceable. You are invaluable to God and you are utterly irreplaceable. Now, don't let that give you a big head. Because that doesn't say much about you. What it says a lot about is the God that you worship. It declares that he is worthy of your worship because he has wonderfully made you. God's word declares it and science proves it. So all of that leads us to this psalm, Psalm 139. You see, one day I think David was looking in the mirror and he just, he was struck by what he saw. He saw God's creative design and handiwork, and it stopped him in his tracks. He realized what a creative genius God is, and he decided to write a song about it. And what the result of that was is Psalm 139. So let's go ahead and jump into it. Look at verse 1 with me. He says, you've searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge, it's too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. We'll stop there for now. So the first point I want to make is this. God knows everything about you. And that's what David begins this psalm by talking about. God's total and comprehensive knowledge of his life. Now, there's a theological term that we use to describe God's knowledge of all things, and we call it omniscience. And in a nutshell, what that means is God, well, he's incapable of learning new things. He already knows everything that there is to know about everything in the world. I love this quote from the great British theologian J.I. Packer. Here's what he said. The omniscience of God indicates that he possesses perfect knowledge of all things past, present, and future, immediately, effortlessly, simultaneously, and exhaustively. Basically, for those of you who checked out during that quote, what that means is you're never going to hear God say, oh my gosh, wow, I never knew that. You can't surprise him. You can't pull the wool over his eyes. He already knows everything about all the fields of science, mathematics, astronomy, botany, geology, and all of them. He knows everything about everything. And that's, that's true and awe-inspiring and wonderful in a general sense. But here's what takes that truth and causes it to explode in your heart. When you 
personalize it. And you begin to realize that God doesn't just know everything about everything in a general way, but personally, on a very intimate and personal level, he takes the time to learn everything that there is to know about you. That is incredible. You see, in these first five verses, David stacks eight different words on top of one another, Hebrew words, to tell us just how well God knows us. He says in verse one, you've, you've searched me. Now, in the, the, the original language, that word could perhaps better be translated, you pierce me through with your searching gaze. You ever had someone just be able to look at you and look through you? Like you, you had someone say, oh, I can see right through you. I mean, do you have a mother, right? They know what's going on inside your soul just by, with a quick look. And that's the way that God sees us. He searches us. And he also knows us. Now, you'll agree with me that there are different degrees of knowledge. You might know something about someone, but then you know your wife or your husband or your kids on a, or your parents on a much deeper level. And that's the knowledge that God has of us. He says, when I know you, he's saying, in the most personal and intimate and deep way. That's how I know you. He goes on, he says, I know, you know when I sit down and when I get up. In other words, it's not just the big events of your life that God takes notice of, but it's the tedious, mundane, just the, the humdrum of everyday life that, do, that God observes and takes notice of. When you go out and when you lie down, he says, you're familiar with all my ways. He goes so far as to take notice of every word on your tongue before it even is formed in your lips and comes out of your mouth. God is already hanging on your every word. He knows what it's going to be before you even say it. He says, you hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. So God sees when you get up, and when you sit down, when you come in, and when you go out, he's before you, he's behind you, he's all around you, he knows everything about you. Are you starting to get a sense of just how comprehensive God's knowledge or interest in you is? It's, it's humbling, it's staggering, it's incredible. It paints a picture almost of God as like this private detective, who has made it his personal mission in life to, to, to find out and mark down every little detail of your life, no matter how tedious or mundane it might be. Nothing is too small. Nothing is considered inconsequential to him. He goes as far as to take notes on every single word that you say. That's how into you he is. Perhaps a better analogy even than that would be to think of new parents. You know how new parents are. Do we have any new parents in the, in the house today? A couple new parents? Okay, cool. New parents, they take notice of every little thing that their kid does, right? And they, they want to make it front page headline news. Like, oh my gosh, did you see what little Johnny did today? He gurgled or little Johnny burped. Did you see that? It's the greatest thing. Look at pictures of little Johnny. And, and, and they just think that everything their kid does is the best thing. And I'm sure it is. But you need to understand that that's how God is with you. He can't Heal himself away from watching you. He even watches you sleep. <laughs> That's crazy. God is so into you, he'll just sit there and stare at you while you're sleeping. It would be creepy if it was anyone else, but knowing that it's God, <laughs> it makes it amazing. The point is, he knows you inside and out. 
He knows your dreams, your wishes, your fears, your frustration. He knows what's going on around you. He knows what's going on inside you. He knows what's about to happen to you. And, and as David ponders this, he says, wow, such knowledge, it's, it's just too wonderful for me. I can't attain it. I can't lay hold of it. It's too lofty. By the way, this is what worship looks like. David is just tripping out on God's goodness in his life. He, he blows a fuse thinking about it. And I wonder, when's the last time that you got lost in a sense of awe and wonder at, at God's grandeur, at the fact that he takes time in his busy schedule to think of you? But you know, something else happened to David as he sat there and thought about how much God knew about him. At first, it inspired worship within him, but the next thing it did is it began to terrify him. Because he realized something. He realized, if God knows everything that there is to know about me, then that means he knows about all the skeletons in my closet. If he knows the good, the bad, and the ugly, then that means he sees what a hypocrite I am at times. It means he knows the lies that I've told. He knows the thoughts that I've had. He knows what I did last week. Oh my gosh. Where can I go? How can I escape him? And he has thoughts of wanting to run away, which leads us into the next sentence. He says, where can I go from your spirit? And where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. And if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. So in the first six verses, David chronicles God's omniscience, his knowledge of our lives. And, and in this next section, he goes on to talk about God's thereness in our lives. How everywhere we go, God is right there beside us. Now, again, the theological word for this is omnipresence. Omni meaning all presence. God is in all places at all times. He goes, if I go to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. If I sail on the, the wings of the dawn, the far side of the sea, even there, you find me, your right hand upholds me. And the principal thought is that God, he's inescapable. He's unavoidable. He's everywhere. So there's this story on April 12th, 1961. For those of you who were alive then, Yuri Gagarin, he became the first man. He was a Soviet cosmonaut and pilot. He became the first man to break through Earth's atmosphere and fly into outer space. And evidently, when he looked out of his spaceship window, he said this, and I quote, I looked and I looked and I looked but I didn't see God anywhere. So that was his quote when he went into space. Now, he may not have seen God, but I guarantee you something. God certainly saw Yuri Gagarin that day. Why? Because God sees everything. He's in all places at all times. He's inescapable, as I said. In a book titled Tales of the Hasidim, this guy Martin Bubier, an early 20th century Jewish philosopher, offered these words concerning the relationship between God and humanity. He says, where I wander, you. Where I ponder, you. Only you. You again. Always you. You, you, you. 
When I'm gladdened, you. When I'm saddened, you. Only you. You again, always. You, you, you. Sky is you. Earth is you. You above, you below. In every trend, at every end, only you. You again, always you. You, you, you. God is everywhere. So where are you going to go that you can hide from him? Running from him is an exercise in futility. But more to the point, it's an exercise in stupidity. After all, why would you want to run from God? To run from him is to run from the fountainhead from whom all blessings flow. To run from God is to run from your own joy and happiness and peace and love and security and eternal life. That's what David ultimately came to discover. You see, he realized something. Wait, wait, God knows everything about me, but he's not mad at me or down on me. He's still in love with me so, so that the one who knows me best loves me most. And this, this brings David into this next section where he begins to see, wow, God, you, you created and designed me perfectly. This is in verses 13 through 18. He says, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. So I can praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. And I know that full well. My frame wasn't hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body, and all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God, and how vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand, and when I awake, I'm still with you. So God knows everything about you, and he's in all places with you, and now we're going to see the creative power and genius of our God in designing you. See, everything you own got made somewhere, right? There's probably a tag in your shirt that says made in Taiwan or made in China or made in America. And you're bound to find a sticker or a tag on everything you own that says made somewhere, wherever it is. But on you, there might just as well be another tag. And that tag would say, made in the image and after the likeness of God, because that's where you were made. Made in God's image. Now, typically when we think about God's creative power, at least for me, I know my thoughts tend to drift towards the creation story in Genesis, and I, I tend to focus on the bigness of God and the grandeur of the heavens above me and the power that he possesses in creating the cosmos and the starry host above us. And those things are indeed impressive. But just as impressive as the heavens above us is what we look at and see when we look in a mirror. You see, God created you. Contrary to what you may have been taught or told in school, depending on where you went to school, you weren't an accident. You're not just the result of billions upon billions upon billions of mistakes. Listen, you were made and designed by a loving God. Everything about you points to a designer. And God, listen, listen, tune in. God doesn't make mistakes. And God doesn't make junk. And so he designed you the way he wants you to be. You are a one-of-a-kind work of art. So my daughter's here this evening, and 
And when she was younger and I, was, I would tuck her into bed, and there's something I used to tell her a lot. And I would, I would say, you know what? When God made you, you know what he did? And she'd say, what? I'd say, he, he stopped everything that was going on in heaven. He stopped all of the commotion and he called all the angels over. And he said, guys, check, check this out. Check out what I just made. Because you know why? When he made you, he was just showing off. That's how cool, that's how awesome, that's how special, that's how beautiful, that's how wonderful you are. God made you and he was just showing off. And that's true of her, but that's equally true of every single one of us. And you know how I know that? I know that because of what Ephesians 2.10 says. It says, for we are his workmanship. Now the word there in the Greek for workmanship is the Greek word poema. P-O-I-E-M-A, poema. And it's a word that can just as well be translated masterpiece. Have you ever thought of yourself in those terms? I'm a masterpiece. You're looking at a work of art here. You do, is that what you see when you look in the mirror? I, I doubt it. I know it's not what I see. We look at ourselves in the mirror and we see the flaws. We, th- we see the things we'd like to change. And there's probably a laundry list of things you don't like about yourself. But you know what God sees when he sees you? He sees a masterpiece. Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Forget about it. Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel. Eh. God says, no, no, no. You are my masterpiece, my work of art. We think to ourselves, oh, yeah, maybe them, maybe her, maybe him. If, if I had less of this or maybe if I had more of that, if I had their intellect or if I has, had her looks or if I had his gift set or if I had their ability or if I, if I could just have that, then I would do more for God. And God says, no, 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 I designed you just the way I wanted. And you have a unique note to play in this symphony of praise to the king. His masterpiece. He didn't just throw you together. Notice how David said that he knits me together in my mother's womb. I like that imagery. Later on, he talks about being woven together, knit and woven. And it makes me think just of like a, a grandmother sitting in a room with a crackling fire in the fireplace. And she's in a rocking chair and her grandchildren are playing on the floor in front of her. And she's just sitting there with a smile on her face. And and she's doing what grandmothers do. She's just knitting away, stitch, stitch, loop, loop, pull it through. I don't know if that's how you do it, but that's what she's doing. And she's knitting this sweater for her grandchild. And she's imagining what it's going to look like when she puts it on them. And that's what God has done with us. He didn't just throw us together. He could have just snapped his fingers and caused you to appear. But no, no, no. He took time and deliberate care in knitting you together, piece by piece, stitch by stitch, loop by loop, each and every one of your parts, delicately, carefully crafted by Almighty God. Let me get nerdy and sciencey on you for just a minute, because I like this stuff. Just 22 days after conception, your heart began to beat. By week three, your backbone and spinal column and nervous system was forming and the liver and the kidneys and the intestines began to take shape. By the end of your first month in existence, you were already 10,000 times larger than you had been just a month prior. Good on you. In the fifth week, your eyes, legs, and hands began to develop. In week six, Your brain waves were detectable in your mouth and lips were present and fingernails were forming. In week seven, your eyelids and toes formed and facial features, including a distinct nose, were observable. 
by week eight, two months in, every organ was in place. Bones began to replace cartilage and fingerprints began to form. By the end of the eighth week, you were beginning to hear. By the 10th week, you could frown and make facial expressions and hiccup. In week 11, all your organ systems were functioning. In week 12, your vocal cords were complete and you could suck your thumb. In week 14, your heart began to pump several quarts of blood throughout your whole body every day. In week 15, you got your taste buds. It was a big week. By week 17, you were already having dreams. At week 20, you were able to recognize the sound of your mother's voice. Months five and six, oil and sweat glands began to function. By month seven through nine, you could open and close your eyes and use four of the five senses, knowing the difference between waking and sleeping and could relate to the moods of your mother. Antibodies were beginning to build up and your heart was already pumping 300 gallons of blood through your body a day and you were learning calculus. No, just kidding. <laughs> Had to see if you're still paying attention. <laughs> then... And only then, you were born. And we say, that's day one. I say, no way. You were born at the moment of conception. Life begins at conception. The Bible declares it. Science backs that up and proves it unequivocally. And you had already accomplished a lot by the time you entered this world. I think David hit the nail on the head when he said, man, I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And keep in mind, he's not bragging here. He's just stating the facts. And the knowledge that God had fearfully and wonderfully made him led him to praise and worship God. And I would suggest that's the appropriate response each and every time we think about how good God is. I like what C.S. Lewis said on this point. He said, the dullest and most uninteresting person you may talk to. <laughs> so think about that person. They may one day be a creature which if you saw them now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all love and plays, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never met a mere mortal. Look at the person to your left or right and tell them you're not normal. <laughs> and that's a good thing. Tell them that's a good thing. <laughs> and notice too, God didn't just create us and then leave us to our own devices. But he says, all the days, verse 16, all the days in my life, they were ordained for me. They were written in your book before one of them came to be. You can imagine David just thinking about this and tripping out on this thought. Like, God, you had a plan. And at the time, I didn't know what was happening. And I was just watching my father's sheep in the fields and I was content, but God, you plucked me from the sheepfold and then you used me to take down this giant and next thing I know, I'm, I'm the king of Israel and I'm leading a nation and God, you had a path and a purpose and a plan for my life that was good and I, I can see that now with hindsight. And the same thing is true for you. The Bible talks about how his good works that he's preordained for us to walk in. I like to think of if you've ever crossed a creek or a stream. We were in Mammoth, my family and I, with some friends recently, and, and you would cross these creeks. You remember that? Where are the Burks? You guys remember crossing those creeks? And there would be stones scattered across the creek that you had to hop from stone to stone to get across the creek. And I feel like those rocks are like the, the, the plans of God, and you jump from God's plan here to there, and it's all the good things that he wants to do in your life, getting you from point A to point B. 
He has this plan for each and every one of us, but it goes better because he's thinking about us all the time. David says, your thoughts about me outnumber the sands that lie in all the seashores, on all the beaches, on all the continents, on all the planets. It's incredible, God, how much you think about me. And those thoughts that he's having towards you, by the way, they're precious. How precious are their thoughts? They're good thoughts too. Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. And so God has all these wonderful things that he's doing for us. He's with us always as well. He's with us in the good times and in the bad. He's there through thick and thin. He's there for the ups and the downs. He's there both now and forever. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Somebody please say praise the Lord. Now, knowing all of these things to be true about God, that he knows everything there is to know about you, that he goes everywhere with you, and that he's perfectly and uniquely designed you from the first day that you were conceived until this present moment, that should produce two things in your life. And David talks about those things as he ends the psalm. The first thing that it should do is it should embolden you. Look at verse 19. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Now, this seems like a bit of a hard left turn in this psalm where David's just rejoicing in God's love for him and thoughts about him. He goes, by the way, God, don't I just hate them who hate you and take care of my enemies, Lord. Wipe them out. Well, here's what I think happens. David had a lot of enemies, just like you do, just like I do. Very real enemies. And they were taunting him and constantly attacking him. But David realized something after dwelling on God's love for him, God's thoughts about him, God's care over his life. He says, you know what? I don't need to be afraid of those enemies anymore because they don't stand a chance. Because when I stand with God, me and God make a majority in any situation and no weapon formed against me shall prosper. And so it gave him holy boldness to take down the giants in his life. And giants don't just come in the nine foot four Goliath variety. They, they, they take variety, various shapes and sizes and they go by various names. They're not all named Goliath. Some of them are named addiction. Some of them are named lust. Some of them are named lying. Some of them are named, we have all these giants. And David goes, I don't need to fear the giants. I don't need to fear my enemies. Why? I've got a holy boldness because God is with me. So it emboldens him in his faith. But the second thing it does is even as it emboldens him, it also simultaneously humbles him. Look at verse 23. Search me, God, and know me. Know my heart, test me, and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now this, this, this is the most important part of the psalm. Because in the beginning of the psalm, David says, you know everything there is to know about me. And here again, at the end of the psalm, he's saying, search my God so that you might know my heart. Now, why would he say that if he's already said, God, you know everything there is to know about me? I have a thought. God knows everything there is to know about me, but I don't know everything there is to know about me. And I can prove that to you. Have you ever done something and been surprised by what you did? I, I can't believe I just did that. that. 
that wasn't me who just said that. Like, that's not who I am. I, I, I don't know where that came from. I don't know why that happened. I don't know how I did that. You see, God knows me better than I know myself. And here's why. I, my heart, sometimes it's, it's deceitful. And it can be wicked. God has given me a new heart, but there are times when the old heart still creeps its way back in. And I can deceive myself on, about my motives, about what I'm wanting to do and why I'm wanting to do it. And so we need to say with David, search my heart again and again and again. And it's beautiful because in the beginning when he's talking about how God knows him perfectly, his, his response to that was, I need to run away and hide, but where am I going to hide? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to hell, you're there. So he's wanting to hide from God. But now, after he spent more time in the presence of the Lord, he realizes that God's not chasing him down so that he can be mad at him or do away with him. But he's chasing him down so that he might bestow mercy and grace upon him. And this is the great lesson of our lives, to know that God is for you, not against you. So when you start to realize that instead of hiding and cowering from the searchlight of his love, you step out and you say, here I am, God, just, just search me. Search the good, the bad, the ugly. I want you to just expose it because I know that whatever you reveal, you heal. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.